Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Modern. And welcome back to the Masters of Modern Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Bateman. I'm not Alex Kessler. I'm Ben Bateman. I'm sitting in Alex's chair. I'm keeping it warm for him while he's gone. I'm here to talk to you guys about modern. I've got a very special guest. Mr. Ruben Bressler is back in the house. Hi. I'm also not Alex Kessler. I'm keeping Ben's seat warm while he has to. It's a process, but we're making it work. Yeah, welcome back, Ruben. Ruben is now a returning guest, uh, host of the Magic Mike's podcast. He has a super sweet Magic D&D project that just got announced. Yeah, thank you. Uh, a generally talented uh, Magic host and somebody who you know has played a lot of Magic, knows a lot. So right. perfect person to talk today about the subject, which is going to be the future of Magic and what will Magic look like in 2020? I think it's a question that there are a lot of different answers to, and I think you're a perfect person for it as somebody who really pays close attention to Magic's habitat, to its mm -hmm. ecosystem, right. um, kind of an all the different places that it affects so um yeah that's that's what we're going to do today on the show how's your day gone gone well uh a bit early for me um, mm. you know i'm usually a bit of a night owl but uh but i always love coming in having these chats with you um you know a little bit difficult getting here yom kippur traffic oh yeah <laughs> on we the are. way over and i live in i live in what what is affectionately referred to as the hebrew hills mm. over in encino so there was good uh good good traffic trying to get on the on the 405 down here but uh but other than that having a great morning and i'm happy to be here do you um, enjoy encino yeah do you like i like it it's fine it's yeah. nice and quiet I've um, spent a lot of time in Encino. Um, the old AfterBuzz TV studios mm. uh, that, we, that was there in Encino. Now it's in North Hollywood, but I used to go to Encino a lot. Also, one of my employers has a home over there, so um, sometimes I go to their place uh, to go to functions yeah. and things. And uh, yeah, for the most part, LA is fairly n easy to navigate. Not not terribly easy to get lost in. And Encino, it's very easy to get lost. I, I, those back hills, those, those crazy. fancy hills. I'm, yeah. I'm really bad with directions to begin with. Mm. I have no survival skill, but, uh, but I, I make it work with the, iP the, uh, the iPhone apps. So. I don't know what I would do with, without like, the iPhone GPS. I would have been lost in a desert years ago. Yeah, feels that way. Feels that way about you and me. So, uh, so guys, we're here to talk about the future of magic. Uh, before we get fully into it, I want to do a quick a couple shout-outs. The first one is a big thank you to Wizardry Foundry for giving away one of these awesome grimoires and some packs. We did a pack war on the live stream just a second ago. Big thank you to Wizardry Foundry. Um, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash the MMCast. There's always an opportunity to win the free packs we're giving away in that pack war um, on the Patreon. Uh, you'll be entered as one of those two places. And also, the last shout-out before we get fully into the show is that we're on YouTube. You guys might be watching this right now. You might be listening to this right now. But we are growing this YouTube channel. It's very important to us. You know, we avoided YouTube for the longest time, and now we're on there. And we really want to build the presence up. We have some huge opportunities coming up. And if you guys want to help us, the biggest thing you can do it's either subscribe to YouTube or donate to the Patreon. They're the two biggest growth factors that we have going right now, and it would mean the world if you did. So that's what I will say. Um, let's get into the topic today. Have you been paying attention to the, uh, the, the Guilds of Ravnica spoilers? Oh, of course. I mean, how can you not be? Mm. It's, it's Christmas four times a year for Magic players, sometimes more often than that. Um, and yeah, there's plenty of interesting new toys for lots of different archetypes that are in Guilds of Ravnica. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting set. Uh, the Ravnica sets always have a pretty big impact, it feels like, on Magic. The, the, I mean, the first one, obviously, incredibly iconic, very impactful. Shocklands, all the, all the great you know, multicolor cards. Mm -hmm. But uh, on top of that, the second one really has had a pretty major impact over the years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on modern, uh, even after just talking about standard, obviously, that standard environment... 
uh, particularly with uh, Innistrad and Return to Ravnica. I believe that that was what it was. Uh, that standard I format? I the fetch lands, um, the, the shock lands and the comes into play untapped lands if you control basic land type were in the same format together. I, I'm assuming in my head that it was Innistrad. I'm not recalling specifically. Uh, I mean, if you go back to the sets and when they all came out, you definitely had uh, M13 was the core set between the two and Return to Ravnica was the fall set that came out after Innistrad okay. and Avacyn. So yeah, that standard environment not was very iconic. Pe lots of people loved that format. Obviously, Sphinx's Revelation standard. But a bunch of those cards have had a huge impact on Modern over the years and yep. on Legacy. Massive. N not just Abrupt Decay and Deathrite Shaman from the Golgari Guild, but plenty of other things as well. Oh yeah, I mean, even just like Goblin Electromancer. Yeah. I mean, I think when we did our Top 10 Is It episodes, which you guys can find on the YouTube channel, um, I believe Goblin Electroman Electromancer was my number one most impactful card best modern is it card i think alex's was electrolyze sure um but i mean is it static casters in there too yeah There's but again a couple of other sideboard cards yeah. we're talking about all cards all cards from these guilds yeah. i think this is something that michael and i said last week and and um i really believe that the the ravnica multicolor cards are so impactful because they represent the truest version of the identity of mm -hmm. those color combos yeah. so while you have like blue red pirates or you have like uh, combinations of blue red and in cons you know as the, is it feels like the most true version of what a blue red card is supposed to feel like right same with you know golgari the same with selesnia like they all really when i think about what that color combo feels like to me it's usually represented in the ravnica guild yeah right i think that uh, uh the first multicolor set was invasion yep and really what they were trying to do with those two color combinations was see where the colors intersected and try to not be not print an offensive card in red and blue, right? Like Razor Fin Hunter is a red blue card that taps to yeah. deal a damage. That's not an offensive card in blue. That's not an offensive card in red. They didn't really explore what it means to be a blue red card. No, because I, and, and as you're mentioning, it's like they they were the lowest common denominator in terms of like the way the cards were to work. So like great example of this would be like um, what's the Jund charm? Is it Darigaz's charm? Yeah, Darigaz's charm. And so it's got lightning bolt, giant growth, and raised dead. Yeah. It's like those are the three modes, right? Yeah. So they were just like we're gonna literally take three cards that you guys know, and we're gonna put them onto one card, and it's gonna cost those three, right. and you choose one. As and opposed to the guild charms, which are interesting from Return to Ravnica, where there was. For example, Azorius Charm has a white mode, a blue mode, and then it has a white-blue mode. Yes, yes. Which I, th which I think is really interesting and sort of embodies that. So yeah, certainly Ravnica, a hugely relevant plane to all of the Magic formats. Yeah, I agree completely. So it's been a lot of fun to watch that uh, we, as we watch sort of the world react to it. There are discussions of, you know, how's it going to affect modern? We already have talked about uh, Assassin's Trophy. Yep. There's just, you, you know, every spoiler season you new can kind one of... New today, there's a new Tajik that looks like it might slot into uh, modern humans. What um, card is it? Tajik. Uh, I forget. Uh, Mentor of the something. It's a 3-2 for colorless red-white that has haste and says that other creatures you control can't be dealt non-combat damage. Wow. Uh, it has Mentor. And it can you can pay a white and a red to give it first strike till end of turn. Wow, that sounds powerful. Yeah, it's it's that that's a lot of words to put on one creature. It does sound a little slow. Might be. It has haste. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, it protects you from pyroclasm. I, I mean, agree, but I do think that one of the things and chain whirler for what it's worth. But. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think that uh, that's a, a strong point that it protects you from wraths from from damage based wraths, right. but. Also, like, Militia Bugler is already, like, falling sure. out of that deck. Of and that was, like, a super solid, easy-to-cast three-drop. Yep. So I, that deck just, for the three-drop slot, it's so tight. Well, you know how difficult mana is in that humans deck. They really yeah. have struggle <laughs> with their lands. 
<laughs> so anyway, guys, uh, the, the conversation today is going to be more about what we expect Magic to look like in a year and change. Uh, what will Magic look like in 2020? So I think we're going to tackle this from four basic axes. Uh, in my mind, there are a couple places to focus on. The first one is competitive and organized play, which uh, there was a big announcement about an increase in Pro Tours we're going to get to in just a second here. Um, the second one is going to be the digital presence. So that, that plays a little bit into that you know organized play stuff, but also with Arena, kind of what's going to happen to Moto, what can we expect there? The third one is going to be additional multimedia. So people have been talking about the movie, a possible TV series, big magic license products for a long time. I kind of want to you know postulate what do we think is going to happen there. Right. And then the final one is the secondary economy. A lot of discussion about counterfeits, the reserve list recently, and magic finance. I think I'd like to talk about a little bit where do we expect magic to be financially in 2020. Mm -hmm. So those are the four. Let's jump right into the first one here. <clears throat> big piece of news came out beginning of the week last week. Yeah. And it was, uh, we are getting two more Pro Tours. There are going to be a total of six Magic Pro Tours in 2019. Uh, was this something you expected? Did you see this coming? Honestly, no. Um, it seemed like they were pretty married to the four sets being released a year and the four Pro Tours a year with their World Championships and their Team Series as their sort of fifth and sixth uh, events. Um, adding these two additional Pro Tours led to uh, a couple of things, not the least of which is that we no longer will have Pro Tour set name. It'll be Pro Tour City from now on, which I'm going to mourn a little bit. But when you have six Pro Tours and four sets, you can't really do it. Right. Um, I, I honestly didn't expect there to be more Pro Tours. I thought they were just going to keep making the Pro Tours bigger. Uh, but instead, they've sort of gone in a, in a go-wide strategy rather than uh, trying to keep making the four Pro Tours bigger. Um, so they've kept the prize pool the same size per Pro Tour, which means that the overall uh, prize pool is going to be 1.5x normal which I think is fascinating. But they uh, have reduced the number of players that are going to be invited to each one. That's exactly right. They're going to reduce the number of players in each one. Um, there's, uh, I don't know how it's going to work out. I mean, whenever they change the, the, OP, the OP, it's um, it's a little bit hazy. Like, you don't know whether things are going to work out. You don't know what, what experiments are going to work and what isn't. And they've been changing a lot ever since Chris Cox took over. Yeah, they, they do keep uh, mixing things up. I mean, that's definitely something they, they are attempting to do and really, really focusing on making it a different feel. And I think there's a, there's a couple different reasons there. But at the, the bare minimum, you did mention each of the new Pro Tours that they've introduced are going to have a $250,000 prize purse. Yeah. So from a basic visibility standpoint, which I know is part of what they want to do, yeah. they want to be able to say... It's not a million dollars anymore. It's $1.5 million now. Right, exactly. And uh, the tales of the $1 million Pro Tour from Jeff Cunningham is going to have to update its name if that series ever comes back. Please, Jeff, bring that series back. Um, but with that said, it's, it's nice that they're giving away more money. It's nice that the players that are going to play in the Pro Tours, even if the Pro Tours are themselves smaller, uh, are going to have a better chance of making money because one of the side effects of a smaller Pro Tour yep. field is that more percentage of that field will make money? So worse records will make money, and so an eleven and four or a twelve or a ten and five is yeah. nearly as bad of a, of a feel bad as it used to be. Yeah, I mean, obviously, getting an invite, getting the blue envelope, getting flown out to some exotic location. Sometimes it's Cleveland, sometimes it's Japan. Sure, um, is a great feeling. But when you show up and you play and you get some bad beats and you lose and you make no money, it definitely makes. Because of how hard it is to get onto a Pro Tour in the first place, mm -hmm. uh, it can definitely be like you lived the dream and then nothing happened. And so I think I would rather I would rather go to a Pro Tour as my first and only Pro Tour on a qualification. We don't know what that qualification is necessarily going to be yet. 
have a better chance to make money in my one chance yeah. there than to show up, live the dream, and just scrub out and walk away with nothing. Sure. Because I think in reality, unless the system changes drastically, getting to a Magic Pro Tour is something that most people will not do ever. Yeah. And the people that do it, many of them will only do it once. There's a very small percentage of people that make to multiple Pro Tours. You have to be exceptionally good at the game and very committed to playing it at a high level to make more than one Pro Tour. It is absolutely exponential diminishing returns on, on any of those kind of things. It's So many people have one Grand Prix Top 8, for example. But to get your second, that's a, that's a thing. To get your third, your fourth, that's that's a bell curve that uh, that very few people get to. So... It's it's I completely agree with you that uh, that making it more prestigious, making it each individual event a smaller field is appealing on that sense. Now, for me personally, I like the spectacle. Yeah. I like I like going to pro tours back when they just let you walk in and walk around. Like that was fun for me. Yeah, different different time, totally right. Yeah, and it, it, they certainly aren't doing that anymore. Um, you know, there's the the recent controversy about the the significant others of members of the team series being unable to be in the room during the team series in Las Vegas this coming weekend, um, which is a far cry from the open and public grand, uh, pro tours that sort of had this sort of grand prix-ish atmosphere, or or at least you know collegial atmosphere of like getting to hang out with just people visiting the event site. Um, yeah, so. I, I one of my hopes for the future would be that they do open it back up to the public. That is something that I've been a big proponent of this this whole time. Um, couple things. First one is I'm just going to ask you to move one inch away, just so you're not talking here, but you're talking here, because I have a feeling that our audio. Okay. I'm just guessing that when I go back to edit, we're sure. going to have some roomy audio on you. Um, the second thing though is as far as the less people, uh, what you're talking about here, less people on each pro tour, but more pro tours. Don't you think that? Because there's less Grand Prix. So isn't that where the money's coming from? They're just pulling it from the Grand Prix? Yeah. I mean, that's where the, that's where the, the prize pool money is coming from. Which, and, and I'm... And make no mistake, prize pools, or it's not prize pools, Grand Prix seem to be losing ground in popularity in their current forms. Well, what I will say is this. So uh, I've gone to more Grand Prix in the last... 18 months probably than I ever had before. Uh, multiple GP Vegases and, and team series and things like that. I've right. gone to a couple and played with uh, listeners of the show on my teams and things like that. Really have enjoyed going to Grand Prix a lot. What I've noticed, Vegas, awesome. Yeah. Great event, huge, very much like a convention. Right. Uh, the team events, the big exciting ones, they're great. When I went to, when I went to GP LA uh, two weeks ago, Aside from our meetup and chaos drafting that we did, which was fantastic, was super fun, the actual event itself was not great. Right. Soup, I, I, would, I would describe it as sleepy. That's what it felt like. Yeah. It felt like, I know there was like 1,500 people. It felt like there was 600 people. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what, standard. Yeah. That's the problem. Well, I just, I, I don't think that standard inherently has to be bad. I think that the fact that all these interesting, uh, pr like like uh, masters level sets and things like that, have made limited such an exciting, uh, like varied type of deal. Mm -hmm. And modern is so popular that it does start to feel like standard is a little bit of the odd man out. Like, nobody really wants to get excited about playing it. Right. I think that there are a couple of things at fault for that, and this is a whole episode in and of itself of why is why is standard more lackluster now, or at least feeling that way than it was 
previously. It might be rosy retrospective a little bit. It might be uh, uh, some of the design philosophy of making the sets designed for limited as opposed to specifically designed for constructed formats in, in specifically with the commons and the uncommons. Um, and there's, there's lots of reasons for it, and that's unfortunate. And I totally agree that Grand Prix in general have felt more sleepy, have felt a little bit uh, uh, more muted, more sepia-toned. I was at Grand Prix Los Angeles, uh, and that was a very small GP compared to how big Los Angeles usually is. And it was partially because it's an August GP. It's a back-to-school GP. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's lots of things at fault for it. But there's there's no mistaking that the proof is in the pudding, that they are smaller than they probably should be. Well, and, and that's the thing. is I, And Alex and I have talked about this on the show for a very long time. I think that, I think that it would be better for all of us if – the big Grand Prix, there was a little bit more momentum behind making them feel like conventions. Mm. Uh, and the smaller Grand Prix, they just get rid of. Because sure. there's really no reason – there's no reason to have people show up, battle in that large of a field against those odds to make that little money. Yep. And that to be the whole focus of a Magic event where, like, Channel Fireball, they're spending a huge amount of money coordinating this. It's – when somebody goes to one of these things for the first time, it should feel like a special experience, especially in a larger city like Los Angeles, right. you know, where you have access to higher profile people in general. There's more celebrities here. There's like you want somebody to show up to that Grand Prix and feel like they're going to something, uh, an experience they'd want to go back to. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes all those Vegas is so special. And that actually was it was similar at Grand Prix Seattle last spring where all of the Wizards of the Coast people were there, that one actually felt more like a convention. They had so many artists, for example, just an astronomical number of artists compared to a normal GP. And those two in particular felt like conventions. They felt like, you know, just hanging out with your friends. And you could enter, you could get the limited Fanatic badge, or you could just enter side events or just play Commander, and it still felt like a Grand Prix um, without even entering the main event. It felt like a big event. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's probably the direction that Wizards of the Coast is heading. I'm, I, they're probably not throwing more money into the Pro Tour circuit. They're just redirecting what money they already have. Now, we don't know that. Uh, per se, it's possible that the Grand Prix schedule is exactly the same as it was this year, um, which would be interesting. I certainly think that it's just going to be a reduced number of Grand Prix. I'm fine with that. I like there being more events. I, what I would rather is that there were more great events. Yeah, um, and, and I'm happy to see two more Pro Tours. That's that's a good thing. So now, this will kind of segue into what we based the episode on, which is what's it going to look like in 2020. In the article, Blake talked about, Blake Rasmussen talked about, uh, this is kind of a transitional year. 2019 is going to be a transitional year. And I think that's supposed to suggest a couple things. Um, one of them is, we're going to see how these two Pro Tours work out. We're we're going to see how the launch of Arena affects the Magic economy. And uh, they are they have their eyes on Magic. They're at least toying with the idea of really trying to push it into the esports space. Yes. And so 2019 feels like it's that's the year they're kind of using as the bridge. Um, what do you think organized play is going to look like in 2020? Yeah, 2020 might be too soon, but certainly by like 2022, I think we're going to have premier level play on Arena. Like Grand Prix on Without physical cards. Do you think that people will be like like they do with a Hearthstone, with showing Hearthstone. up to an arena and actually playing possibly arena physically in front of each other, like on a device? I think that's possible. I think that there's also room for play from home style events, like online PTQs are now on Magic Online, except for that these feature matches would be like the uh, um, so there are plenty of oh, there's like New Order Esports opens uh, for Hearthstone and events like that where. 
you know, you have commentators and they broadcast from home and a lot more like the, the Super Leagues, for example, where people are playing online from the comfort of their own home, but playing in these premier level events. That's the direction I'm seeing. Now for Pro Tours, boy, it's going to be a heck of a thing if uh, Arena is the format for Pro Tours. Because I think that that's, that's, that's where we're headed. That's the direction. I mean, it's, I don't see that at the end of the tunnel, but that's certainly the tunnel that we're in. Well, it makes you wonder. So, like, for instance, um, if Arena Standard becomes the way that the standard Pro Tour is played, like, they won't do it for Modern because the backwards compatibility right. necessary. That's, that's the other weird thing is now that we have six Pro Tours, two of them are probably Modern or at least one right. of them and then maybe some other new format of some kind. I would like here my dream scenario would be as, you know, as this develops that we get up to more like 12 pro tours. Like in the end mm. that we're we're doing like a like like the PGA tour. Like right. you're you're getting like or maybe it's a little different than that, but like I I like the idea of more premier level events and I like that there would be, you know, 30% of them would be arena. It would allow people to yeah. get excited about playing and, and practicing this format. It kind of legitimizes Magic Online in a way that it's not very legitimate right now. Right. Um, but it also would mean that Modern could be pushed as a paper format. Um, I think that's the direction. I would be totally happy if we cut the Grand Prix schedule in half you know, got it up to 12 Pro Tours uh, and figured out that, you know, Arena was going to make enough money they could inject some more marketing budget behind it. Like, obviously, I'm just throwing out numbers yeah. right now, but that, to me, is, like, the goal. The goal is, to, is that Magic starts to feel like every single month there's a super high-level event you can qualify for to go win a lot of money. And yet, I still want to have the ability to go... See, a big thing for me is the community and the friends that I've made and, like, the, the, the opportunity that I see a lot of folks that I haven't seen in a long time to see them all in the same place are the magic grand prix or you know star city opens or other uh, conventions like that convention style atmospheres even if it's a grand prix that is more tournament based um you know at this point in my life i'm not a tournament player like that's not i'm not expecting to win or make day two of a gp at this point in my life um, but I am still going because I want to see these people. And, and that, that, cutting that away, and also for me and, and for us, uh, being unable to interface with the fans, being unable to you know, get, get uh, face-to-face with, um, with Patreon supporters or other creators, right. that's, a, that's a big cost as well. Don't you think that like, if we had, maybe not 12, but let's say we had eight Pro Tours, sure. or you know, eight or ten, and you cut the number of Grand Prix in half, but instead of having them... Uh, all over the place, you have like basically once a month an opportunity in the United States in a, in a major city. Like yeah. you, so you only are really doing LA, New York, Chicago, right. Atlanta, Seattle. Like you're focusing on the biggest locations where if you want to go there, it's going to be a little bit of a destination anyway. Like that's for me, like the big thing about Vegas is like when I go to GP Vegas, it's so fun. It's a destination. But it's really fun. As opposed fun. to Pro Tour Cleveland. It's like super fun. No offense to Cleveland or to Richmond, but it's not like, it's not like Vegas or Seattle yeah. or Chicago. You go somewhere and you're like, I'll stay an extra day or two. Yeah. I'll see some friends. I'll see the city. It's a worthwhile expense just to go. Um, staying in a, in a hotel in Vegas is a fun experience, period. So it's worth going to Vegas just for that. So I think that's kind of a... You know, a cool thing to think about. Now, the other argument that I've that we've made on Magic Mike several times is instead of traveling around the United States, build a Magic the Gathering arena in Seattle. Build a home for the Magic the Gathering Pro Tour. That'd be so sweet. It'd be dope. 
and you could put the Magic Pro Tour Hall of Fame in it, a Hall of Fame that doesn't have a physical location right now. You can have all of the people who are at Wizards of the Coast be at every Pro Tour, see it on the ground, see what the competitive atmosphere is like. Your players can plan around being in Seattle two, three, four times a year. And that, you know, you can, you can, you you control so many more variables that way rather than trying to, you know, uh, uh, put, put something in a convention center in Cleveland in the winter because it's cheaper, put, putting a convention center in Barcelona in the summer because it's cheaper. You know, that's, that's, that's why those pro tours are in those locations is because they're not during peak tourist season for those, you know, Cleveland's a beautiful city in the summer. Right. Uh, you know, Barcelona's pretty miserable in the middle of June. So it's, it's, it just makes so much more sense to just put it in Seattle or LA if you really want yeah. to, or somewhere on the East coast. Um, but we've, we've talked about that so much on magic mics and it's, it is a little staggering that they haven't, you know, brought it up or cons- I mean, well, when I'm you sure talk they've about, had the conversations. When you but. talk about building an arena, I mean, I, you, it is important to remember that them injecting $500,000 extra for a year of prize money is already like a huge, like sure. a challenge and building an arena is going to cost tens of millions of dollars. Of uh, Michael, our producer is looking at us. What do we got in the chat? We have uh, somebody in the chat asking about foreign GP. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's really tough. Obviously, when I talk about a, a smaller number of these U.S. GPs and, and in major cities, I think it would be important to have the foreign GPs like you need to have them. Um, but how do you make it so that there's enough of them worldwide in major cities so that it's not like Japan's getting one GP in the whole year yeah. or, you know, like and, and I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that question is. I think in some ways the third party organizers making these tournaments uh International is sort of important at some point, but I guess the momentum and the cash behind it's going to have to be there for that to happen. Yeah, I think that uh, the the current number of GPs is somewhere around like forty ish, forty forty five, something along those lines. I would not be upset with them reducing that to twenty four, maybe thirty, um, and putting a third of a third of them in the United States, a third of them in the Asia Pacific, and a third of them in Europe. Yeah. Um, you know, sorry, Australia, but it's like you'll get your one or two a year like you currently get, I guess. Right. Um, but uh, that that's just that's just the price of, of no, reducing like, no the like numbers. GP Sao Paulo or anything like that. Yeah. No South American, no Central American, no South African. Yeah. Um, you know, it's tough because like you want obviously to be able to do that. Of course. I, and, you know, maybe you can alter that a little bit. Like if you have 30 GPs, you put 10 of them. In the Americas, yeah. then you put 10 of them in Europe and Africa and most of Asia, Asia, and then 10 of them in Japan, China, and Australia area. Um, but I think reducing the number makes a ton of sense. So uh, that's going to be, I think, kind of uh, how we're going to touch on organized play in 2020. We're going to move on to the next part of this, which is digital. Uh, we started to touch on Arena a little bit. Before we do that, I do want to ask our producer, Michael Grothy. Um, Mike, can you just do me a favor really quickly and the, the guys upstairs – we just ask them to walk a little quieter. We got a lot of stomping around, and okay, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so I think I think the digital face of Magic is an important place to focus on. You know, I've just started playing Moto. Um, I know I keep talking about it on this show, and like literally, my goal is this week to stream for the first time. Mm. Um, I, I've been accumulating everything I need to, uh, and that's going to be on Twitch under Ben Bateman streaming. In case you guys feel like following, getting ready for that. Um, but Moto has always been Magic Online has always been sort of this this like strange nebulous program because it makes a ton of money for wizards of the coast. Yeah. It's 
uh, pretty well designed in the sense that it manages to encompass everything you can do in magic. Um, it actually works. It's functional. But it's also frustrating, and it's not visually that pleasing, which is the, obviously the reason that Arena has been a thing. So with Arena launching, uh, and I believe Arena is set to launch here pretty soon, yeah, right? Like I think it's so. going to... I think it's going to be public in the next mm -hmm. few months. Um, what's going to happen to Moto by 2020? Like, what's yeah. like where will we be in terms of arena play, Magic Online play in the year 2020? I honestly have no clue because we don't know how backwards compatibility is going to work for arena. We don't know if old sets are going to be introduced on arena. And if they aren't, that means that modern lives forever and legacy lives forever and vintage lives forever on MTGO and not on arena, this program where they're putting all of this money into, um, it's, it's really strange. And, and I don't know what they're going to do with magic online. They have no impetus to improve it because it's already making them so much money. And they have this other program that they're launching and trying to make beautiful and compete with esports. They don't really have an interest in making magic, the gathering online all of that also that's a whole nother team yeah i think like the trickle down effect of what they would have to do to get us to a place where we could have even a somewhat backwards compatible arena it would be modern would be the first step mm -hmm. and that would be that's like four years from now i feel yeah. like minimum like it, th there are so many kinks they have to work out to even get this thing to launch i had gavin very on here like probably a month ago talking about this and obviously he's uh, media trained working yeah, for wizards to not like really say anything more than like we're doing everything we can to launch arena as best we can right. um but even so like i think there are so many steps they would have to get past to make arena uh, a, a modern format. I don't yeah. think it's going to happen for a long time. I mean, modern is such a big format now that at the point that modern started, it it is bigger now than Legacy was when modern started. That is a massive number of sets to try to put online. Um, so what they would have to do is for every new set that comes out, they would have to introduce a old set like once a month to catch up in several in like seven years. I don't even know if those numbers are right, but that's like yeah. that's where my head's at. Or 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 they just devote an enormous amount of money and they hire extra programmers and sure. they just have they're doing it back end and then one day it's just we're they launching open all the of floodgates it. and we have every backwards compatible set available. I online. mean, all I'm saying is all I'm saying is like modern's the most fun format to play in Magic. Uh, it's the most popular format in Magic other than Commander, so it's the most popular competitive format. Yeah, and if they really want Magic to be an eSport, it's going to take some money. Mm -hmm. And that money is probably pretty well spent making the most popular format a format you can play in Arena. I, I mean, I'm just saying, like, we, we have an actual audience in this podcast. We've had one. It gets bigger and bigger every month. Mm -hmm. We talk about modern. Like, th there's a reason, you right. know? There's a reason that this audience keeps growing and the podca podcast keeps getting more popular because people love modern. Right. So, I, I mean... And so for, for Arena to not have either Commander or Modern on it, I think that that's a huge hurdle that they're going to have to address sooner rather than later, possibly by 2020. Yeah, I think uh, Commander is a harder one for me to sell putting the money and time behind. Sure. For A, reasons because there's reserveless cards and there's, there's really old cards in Commander. It literally encompasses everything. So there's a whole extra whatever that ends up breaking down to seven years basically of sets that you have to make legal right. um, and a lot of which are so weird and arcane that they don't even begin to make sense but also because i don't think the appeal in commander 
for by and large is playing online. Correct. It never would be, right? The appeal of like, like the appeal of commanders playing with your friends at the kitchen table exactly. or, or getting a group together. I mean, there is still a vibrant commander community on Magic Online, um, but it isn't nearly the the groundswell, the grassroots that it is live. So. That's uh, that's what we think probably the, the the hurdles there are. So now, if in 2020 we don't see Arena, including Modern, which I think it's safe to say that's yeah. almost a guarantee it won't, um, do we think Magic Online is going to get bigger, smaller? Uh, what what will it look like in 2020? Um, hmm. Magic Online is – it's tough to say that it's going to get bigger. Um, I don't think it's going to get that much smaller, though, especially if Arena isn't going to be backwards compatible. If it's the place that you can play – cube for example if it's the place that you can draft flashback draft if it's the place that you can do that kind of stuff it's still going to have its audience it's still going to be making money for wizards of the coast it'll exist until such a point as that all of the people that want to play those formats stop playing it and so it'll sort of much like the life cycle of an mmo rpg online once people start fading away from it, it stops gaining viewers, and it's not going to be a quick drain of players, but slowly but surely, it'll uh, deteriorate, and then eventually the people and the, and the rest of it will leave, and it'll sunset as a program. Um, I don't think that that's anytime soon. Yeah, we're I'm talking 10 years, maybe. At least, because people love Cube, for example, and the only place to play Cube online is Magic the Gathering online. Mm. Um, people love Modern. At this point, it's the only place to play Magic Modern online. And so I think that there's plenty of future for Magic Online, even with all of the frustrations and consternation around it as a program. Um, so, guys, coming up, we are going to continue talking about digital. We're going to be talking about Magic's secondary economy, uh, the finance aspect of it, what we think it's going to look like in just over a year. And we are also going to be talking about uh, digital media projects that we can expect to see, as well as just general media from Magic. Um, quick shout to Michael, our producer today. Any comments in the chat about what they think, MTGO or Arena? Anything interesting? Uh, we have yeah, just people talking about whether they think Arena will replace Magic Online or if they'll have to make a new Magic Online or how Arena is going to influence Magic Online. Um, there's people talking about the economy of Magic Arena and what they do or don't like about it. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so quick shout out, guys, uh, before we move on to the next part of the show. We do have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. Uh, the Facebook group is damn near approaching 5,000 people, which is a lot of fun. It's uh, yeah. The conversation in there is crazy. It, like you got a good thread going, it's going to have hundreds of comments on it. I so, do a lot of my research for Magic Mike's on for, on the format specifically yeah. through those threads. Yeah, it's crazy. I go back and read those. And- Conversations start, and it's just like, it's epic. Big shout yeah. to Hagen Kirk for helping run that. He's a moderator on the on the group there. And then we also have the page, which we'll share the links out and stuff. So, uh, again, another reminder, please subscribe on YouTube. It's a big help for us to keep this thing going. Uh, it's definitely the biggest, the biggest growth moment for us is right now. So if you want to help us out, comment, like, subscribe. It means a lot. Let's talk about uh, digital projects and media projects from Magic. Sure. We did an episode probably six months ago we thought was going to be a big deal. Um, we were sure that it was going to be a big deal. Uh, I got an inside scoop from a Hollywood friend of mine. Um, I, I literally got the, the agency breakdown sheet that had the plot of the Magic movie. Wow. Uh, it had <laughs> all of the characters they were casting. It, it literally had it all. I read the sheet. Uh, and we we didn't directly credit the person, and we didn't directly read the sheet. Sure. But we basically shared all of the information on an episode. 
and the episode did not track. It made no news, and no one cared. Huh. Um, it was bizarre. I couldn't believe it. I, people don't care about it in the way that I thought they did. Um, Chandra was going to be the lead character in the movie. You know, Tezzeret's in there, Nicol Bolas. There were some characters we hadn't heard of. Um, fascinating stuff if you're a big Magic fan. But right. So, you know, I know the Magic movie has been talked about for a long time. There's been many versions of the script that have come to pass. Uh, you know, you had there was specific directors referenced on there, people that had passed on it. And I just don't know what to expect. I do know... I do know that Wizards of the Coast is interested in taking the brand more global and making it bigger. Mm -hmm. So I do expect that at some point we're going to see something, whether it's a cartoon series, a streaming series, a movie. Something eventually is going to happen, but what's it going to look like? But I don't when? know. Yeah, do you think exactly. by 2020 we have any movement on this? Not a movie. I mean, it just seems like we've, we've been down this road before with this magic movie so many times, and it's never come to fruition and ma I mean, magic is more popular now than it's ever been. There's no denying that. But um, it just seems like there's no momentum to get a movie going. Now, the flip side of that is that I think it's much more likely that there's something like a Netflix or a Hulu uh, series, um, either animated or live action, something along those lines. I think that the magic storyline lends itself and the magic game lends itself better to that sort of serialized longer form slow burn kind of thing right uh than a movie which you know the world I, I always thought world of warcraft would do that as well and then they came out with their movie um and it made plenty fine. of money but made, no one liked it made tons of money and isn't yeah. gonna have a sequel so uh th that that would mean i hope that that wouldn't happen to magic and instead there would be you know uh an avatar the last airbender style three seasons of a show and then another you know, let's visit other characters in that world or Star Wars Rebels style thing where, you know, there's a full series and then they, those characters are so uh, popular and live on in, inf or live on in, uh, not infamy, but live on forever, um, that they want more in that style. And so that's where I think that the digital media, the, the content uh, of the future is going to come from, is hopefully a Netflix series. Yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd think, based on the audience, if we've got, uh, by all estimates, between 25 and 30 million players worldwide, uh, about 10% of those players are tournament players. So that's still 2 to 3 million people that are thinking about Magic on a week-to-week -week basis right. constantly. That have at least heard of what FNM is. Yes, the brand of Magic is incredibly well-known at Absolutely, this point. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and even, you know... It's mainstream. We'll get to the finance aspect in a minute here but like even the financial aspect of magic has started to spread out where people are actually aware of what it is as a collectible like a mm -hmm. valuable thing yeah. so it does seem like that that uh, ip is strong enough to get something going what i would love to see personally would be more like an anthology series yeah where each season was focusing on a different storyline yeah. um, and that eventually you could have your your time spiral or dominaria type of thing where you have some some kind of plane crossover um, i think that'd be a really cool way to do it make it like ravnik and horror story yeah yeah something like that i mean i and and obviously you know for me what would i would want the writers to write a good story yeah not to base it so much in the in the you know, exp expanded universe realms and all the, right. like, like I don't really care that much about the story that's been told through the cards. I care about some of the characters and I would care about a quality script. Right. I don't need it to be like, I played these cards and this, and now I'm seeing it play out in a show. Yeah, Close exactly. would be good, but like, look at Riverdale. It's not like right. that's Archie. Exactly. It's just a really good show. That's fun. And it's genre right. that borrows the characters. And on the flip side, you have stuff like dark tower, it is a spectacular book and then was a garbage movie. So 
I don't know. Think I'm spoiling it for anybody. No, nah, that, that was a that was a, that was a loss. That was that one. one. Of, that was one of the biggest uh, disappointments of my of my movie to book watching life. Sweet casting too, and yeah, just not fantastic. Yeah, but, yeah. And I I would hope that that wouldn't happen for Magic because there are the groundswell for Magic at this point. It is it is well known in popular culture. It was recently referenced in a Saturday more like Saturday morning comic strip cartoon read, read mostly by, you know, 60 year old mothers of eight yeah, or whatever. Totally. Um, it was on episodes of Silicon Valley. The rumor is that the folks at stranger things were probably going to use magic as their central motif rather than dungeons and dragons. If it had existed in the time frame of the early eighties, interesting. Um, that was the rumor that I'd heard. I don't know if there's any truth to that. Um, but boy, that would have been a great kick in the pants for magic as well. I think that there's more stuff like that in line, um, where there's, you know, it just becomes more and more and more acceptable. A lot like comics, for yeah, example. Well, for sure. And, and yeah, definitely. You saw, you saw what happened. The movie started getting made. They started making money. Then the MCU did a good job. And now mm. comic books, it's like literally like movie news shows, it's about comic books. Like, yeah. That's the most relevant, significant part of the movie industry now. And you flash back to the early 80s when these comic book companies were going out of business, right? So the other thing is don't be in a rush. I think 2020, I mean, we don't even need to yeah. talk about, we could be talking about 2030 for the magic movie. We could, this is way in the future. I, I don't think it's going to take that long. I do think that them pushing arena properly is going to be essential to the growth of the digital, the digital space. Like I think finding that movie or that streaming series is going to, it's going to, the temperature is going to be taken when, when arena hits and, yeah. and what's it look like after a year of adoption, you know, are people behind it? So I think, uh, you know, we've talked about that quite a bit and, and I'd like to, to get in a little bit, uh, to what it actually is going to mean for the magic economy, the actual financial mm -hmm. aspect of magic. And this can circle back to modern a little bit. I, I see Kess Games commenting in the live chat here. Uh, Michael's smiling. Uh, is that Alex? Somebody is in the chat. I think it might be Alex. It might be Craig upstairs. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah, they're just tro are they trolling pretty hard. Somebody said, I, they said, <laughs> I thought magic movie combos were MM cast poison. Yeah. It's a, it's a good point. People don't like when we talk about it. So uh, that, that's enough conversation about that. But uh, we're, we are going to talk briefly a little bit about Magic's uh, the secondary economy, the financial market, and what we can expect by 2020. Because right now, we're in a fascinating time. This is, this is the closest I've ever paid to Magic Finance as recently. I've, I've ve paid very close attention. Yeah. Um, the reserve list spikes in the last two years are crazy. It's astronomical yep. stuff. Uh, and we know that there's investment groups that have gotten involved and have spiked these prices. Um, but you know, I had a conversation with somebody relatively high up at one of the, the three major online retailers the other day, asking them specifically, you know, what do you think about the reserve list spikes? How do you feel about them, right? And their response was like, look, I think that people are being empowered to manipulate the market by spending money. But more than that, like, people are aware of the fact that these are commodities now. Mm -hmm. they, he's like, it's... Black Lotus is the, the, the gold standard, right? Yeah. Black, it just keeps going up in price. Like yeah. our, you know, one, of, one of my good friends um, has said $80,000 Black Lotus is a deal right now. He's like, in, I think in five years, you're looking at a million dollars. Wow. Um, and if you think about it, what's going to kill the value of reserveless magic cards? I mean, what would kill the value? Uh, the company going out of business is one. Yep. Really good fakes is another. Yep. And um, doing what they did with Silver Age comics and and uh, uh, baseball trading cards of 
reopening up the floodgates and overprinting and having a Chronicles issue all over again. So completely doing away with the reserve list with no warning ahead of time, with no and also no no restrictions on reprinting. So there's a couple of things that does that do it. So let's answer each of those concerns uh, and and talk about why they're unlikely. Yeah. The first one is the game going out of business at this point seems pretty hard to believe. It would be very difficult for Magic to stop. It's, I mean, if it didn't go out of business during the most recent recession, yep. uh, which it, it proved itself to be a lot like a comfort food, uh, Magic did not suffer nearly as much as other similar industries. It's the best designed game ever. Yeah. It's, it's the most fun game. I, it's kept me and everybody I know that's played it engaged most of our lives. Like yep. if you go away from it, it doesn't, it's never something that you come back to and you're disappointed by. Mm -hmm. It just keeps getting better and better. Yep. The better job, they just keep making it more and more interesting. So the, the game going out of business seems uh, very unlikely at based this point. on lack of interest seems very low. Yeah. It's also managed to outlast all of its competitors, and even in the influx of esports and online digital, mm -hmm. managed to stay incredibly popular and gotten bigger than ever during. It's the only one that has stayed that big. It's very rare that the first is also the most successful, and Magic has managed to do it, and it doesn't show any signs of slowing down. The second is really good fakes. Now, the counterfeit issue is a real issue. Um, the bigger it gets, the more expensive the cards get, mm -hmm. the better the technology is going to get to make these fakes. Now, we know Wizards is taking legal action and trying to shut these factories down at I don't know exactly, it, it, like I don't know exactly how that's going to work. Um, how they're going to be able to combat that? What I do know, counterfeiters by and large are off-brand people that are trying to make a quick buck. Hasbro is one of the largest companies in the world. Um, the amount of money they have that are that they have that at their disposal to protect their IP yeah. is ludicrous. And our government is pretty strong when it comes to protecting large businesses. Yes. Um, so my feeling is that it seems pretty unlikely they would lose that battle if they really started to go to town. I agree with that. I think that the, the issue comes from th that I'm worried about is when it's not small time, you know, small time hackers and small time uh, uh, counterfeiters and it gets to be large companies uh, or a relatively large, maybe 10 times, 50 resources, times, yeah. yeah, that have the resources to actually produce fakes of the type that we're actually afraid of. Um, you know, if, if the fakes right now are good enough to fool most people on the naked eye and even under intense scrutiny, fool some people, um, when, when a Bond villain gets the resources to actually impact the market, it's going to be a problem. Um, but until we get to that point, and it doesn't look like we are getting close to that point, but once we get to that point, you're right. The United States government and and uh, Hasbro are very good at protecting um, companies and themselves. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see what happens. I I believe there's mass hysteria on the subject right now, and I yeah. I have a feeling this. It is, is the... certainly a scary topic. It has bad optics. Definitely, uh, and and the, and obviously the counterfeit game has stepped up with in response to all of these these finance guys getting in and buying in so much because the prices of the cards are getting ludicrous they're getting crazy yeah. um now this affects modern in some ways there's kind of two halves to the conversation there's the modern side but there's also the reserve list side which is really a whole different conversation yeah. because you're seeing spikes happen in cards and and currently I, i've been investing i've been buying in um, not at the not like we're talking about price spikes but i've been right. buying copies of cards because i started to realize it's 25 years later. These cards in the first few years are collectibles. They're incredibly scarce, mm -hmm. and they're only going up. They've spiked a lot, but I think in five years they're going to spike a heck of a lot more. Yep. I think like 
especially when you're talking about a movie or arena or more interest, people just getting more and more involved, that stuff from like 93 to about 98 um, is very rare. And if you're talking about like foil rares from the reserve list from like Destiny and Legacy and near mint, you're talking even just commons from beta that are Mm -hmm. near mint. Like that stuff is incredibly scarce. And so I think that's a different ball game than the modern stuff. The modern stuff itself is like making a fake fetch land sucks, but wizards can affect the price of their own cards by right. reprinting if they want to. Yeah. So the, keeping the game accessible for people I think is important, and I never really want to see more than a couple modern cards near that $100 mark. Right. I'd like it if most modern cards that were expensive were more like in the 20 to $50 range. Yeah. That's like as high as I I'd like modern to be. I would like, I would like most rares to follow the life cycle of Thrag Tusk and Siege Rhino as opposed to Abrupt Decay. Um, because, you know, Thraktus and Siege Rhino, during their lifetime in Standard, were never more expensive than $10, despite being the most ex- uh, uh, most played creatures. I mean, they're rares versus Mythics, R- which rare. is a, which well, is a different conversation. What, uh, was Abrupt Decay a Mythic? No, Abrupt Decay was rare. Right, so, and those are like, what, 30 Are Abrupt Decay's $30 now? They're a lot. Really? Yeah. Even after the 17 now, it's, reprinting? it's because that they saw, they see play in older formats, and Siege Rhino and Thraktus really don't, but... There, th- those are just the examples I could think of off the top of my head. I would re- there, there are other mitigating factors for things like that. What does your gut tell you by 2020 uh, Magic's finance looks like? Do you think it's the prices stay as they are now? Do you think uh, they go down? Oh, they're never, they never go down. 18 um, months reserve list? What do you I think? I think every, every, card that is a, the, every card on the reserve list will spike. If it hasn't spiked yet, it will. 100% of them. Even like the bad Homelands rares that are Correct. 70 cents. Even the bad home, Homelands rares that are 70 cents. I think that because they're commodities, because, you know, the game just ne- is never getting younger. I think that every single one, like there have been some weird cards that spiked. Um, especially, and, and obviously all the foils, even the unplayable foils from play, from things like uh, Urza's Legacy and Urza's Destiny and Mercadian Masks, those are also going to go up. Um, you know, you have unplayable garbage from Nemesis and Prophecy that are going to be... None of that stuff's on the reserve list. Nemesis and Prophecy aren't? Yeah. No. Nope. Oh, okay. Just, it, just Masks. It... I don't think masks is. It ends. It ends before masks. Does it? I'm pretty certain. I mean, I know the list pretty well as I've, like I said, I've been investing. Okay. Um, the the two sets that have foils that were printed are Urza's Legacy, Legacy and Urza's Destiny. Destiny. Yeah. So you have like, and I've bought a few of them because I think that that's a, I think that those are pretty scarce. Yeah. So like I bought a couple foil donates. I, I saw bought some, a foil second chance the other day. It's like we, 90 bucks. This, yeah. yeah. That's absurd. It's crazy. Yeah, the, the the stuff from from that time period. Um, there's just, and I agree with you. I think every card will spike. I think to varying degrees. I think some of those spikes will come down. There sure. are there are cards that will spike that aren't good that'll come down. But I think if a card is playable, like you're seeing, guys, cradle is like four hundred dollars. Like yeah. there's, and that's th- that's a shame because yeah. like. There are cards that like Gaia's Cradle where it's like, I'd like people to be able to play that card. Mm-hmm. I would like that to be a card that could be in Commander decks that people could be aware of, but they're not going to be able to play it. Correct. And it isn't Black Lotus. So that's, I think, the shame of it. But Here's what I would like, and this is a bit out there, but what I would like for Wizards of the Coast to do is at the end of this year, say this year was our 25th anniversary. In 10 years, we're celebrating our 35th anniversary. In 10 years, we're getting rid of the reserve list. In a decade. It doesn't... I don't think it helps. Well, okay. It helps and it doesn't help, right? Because... Is there a number where it helps? No. Because it's a nebulous topic. And I'll tell you exactly why. Uh, one of the reasons is because some of that stuff I'm talking about, the scarcity, mm-hmm. that won't affect those cards. Sure. Beta Benelish Hero is not going to yeah. be less money 
unless they find a way to exactly reprint Beta Ben Elish Hero. But right. even then, it's like a reissued edition. It's not going to be the same thing. Exactly. And people aren't collecting that card because it's good. They're collecting it because it's old. It's scarce. It would help with things like Dual Lands or Gaia's Cradle or cards right. like that. And those old versions can maintain their value. You don't need to print Beta Black Lotus. You can print 35th Anniversary Black Lotus, right? That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, and I mean, you would have to find a way to make it like pretty scarce to not screw things up. I, sure, well, I really, it would not be. It would it would be like S- S- San Diego Comic Con promo rarity level. I just don't know if I want that. I almost think that like Magic's old old stuff. Like, how many cards do you think there are on the reserved list where they see consistent enough play in, in multiple formats that like. The reprinting would would really help Magic. It's almost exclusively the dual lands. There's they're, about there's they're about the top right. There's about 15 cards and 10 of them are dual lands. Yeah, like the other ones that aren't dual lands. It's like Ice like Cradle, City of Traders, Gaius Cradle, Grim Monolith. Yep. Um. Yeah, that's like about it. There's a couple others, but yeah. there's very few. Those are the most important ones, right? Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Um. Because we you've seen reprintings of a lot of them, like mm-hmm. like before they changed the foil rule. You know, yeah, it's an interesting conversation. I, I think by 2020, you're going to see things. I mean, my guess is 18 months from now, things are going to look pretty much identical to how they look now. Yeah. The reserve list is just going to be worth 100% more than it is now. Yeah. The thing is It'll that. Double that probably in 18 months. Yeah. Wizards of the Coast is a Goliath at this point. It is slow to react. And the reserve list and the pricing and the investors are moving faster than Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast can on it. And so that's why they have to start thinking five, ten years ahead, is because by the time they're thinking about it then, like you said, a Black Lotus is going to be worth a million dollars. And that to me is not... I don't need Black Lotus ever. I don't ever need a reissued Black Lotus. Sure. I just It just doesn't matter. Like, you can play it online, you can find a way, but a paper collectible Black Lotus needs to stay what it is. It's it's the Babe Ruth rookie card. Yeah. Like, you have to have those classics, in my opinion, stay what they are. The dual ends are the hardest conversation to have because people need to play them, but, like... Well, there was an article written by Saffron Olive yep. uh, who suggested no reserved list legacy as a new format, which pretty much gets rid of the those few cards we referenced, and the, and the Dual Lands. Um, the Dual Lands make up about 70% of the total reserve list cards, maybe more, in Legacy, yep. in terms of cards that are in deck lists. And so if you get rid of those, and you have easy replacements, you have uh, you know cards like Prairie Stream, and you have cards like Hallowed Fountain to be right. able to replace them, um, replace them obviously a little bit worse and the metagame shifts and changes and burn becomes better and it's aggro just, it's strategies all, all become that happens if you do that though no reserveless legacy is that you get some hybrid of overextended legacy and modern and it's just like sure yeah which but like, what's wrong with that it's probably Does nothing legacy, is it really that different of a format than legacy no reserved list legacy is just slightly different modern and that's okay with me yeah I'd, I'd, I'd play that format. I'd play the, I'd play the crap out of that format. Yeah, I mean, Legacy, you know, every every deck gets different tools when you move back another 13 years, so. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple cards that you'd probably want to ban. Sure. You know, I don't think we would want Force of Will in that format necessarily. Um, but I don't know. Like, that, that, could, that could be an interesting conversation to have. I don't know. Yeah. We're, uh, we're running out of time, so I think— uh, But, I mean, there's, there's so many variables about specifically the, that, that, the, pro, the biggest central issue is that Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast cannot officially recognize that cards are worth money on the secondary market in their language. 
And so being unable to say it out loud and be able to have those conversations really ties their hands behind their back. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's definitely the, the hardest part is that the, the secondary economy is a, is a completely independent beast. Yep. Um, so anyway, guys, that's going to wrap us up today for the episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. Um, where can the folks find you and information about your Magic the Gathering D&D stuff? Sure. Hi, I'm Mox Ruby on the internet. Uh, M-O-X-R-E-U-B-Y. You can follow me on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and Snapchat. Uh, you can also follow one of my podcasts, which is the Magic Mike's podcast at twitch.tv slash M-A-G-I-C-M-I-C-S. And you can also follow that on Twitter at Magic Mike's cast we broadcast every wednesday at 11 p.m eastern 8 p.m pacific we're basically a live uh news show um, where we discuss the news of the day with me aaron campbell and evan Irwin. Uh, and we also have a Patreon for that. You can feel free to go to Patreon and search for the Magic Mike's podcast on there as well. And oh, by the way, I have a brand new Dungeons and Dragons show taking place on the Plain of Ravnica. It's the first time that D&D and MTG have crossed the streams like this with the release of their book called The Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. And Ravnica the Broken Pact is the official uh, live roleplay show of the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, where I will be the dungeon, or more accurately, the Guildmaster. Uh, and that is premiering on October 13th at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time at twitch.tv slash DND. Super sweet. Um, guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Michael Grothy for uh, being our producer for the day. Uh, as always, Mike, you're, you're the best. Um, be sure to check out the show. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe. If you're listening on audio, subscribe on YouTube. Uh, comment, like, subscribe, all those things. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ben Bateman Media. Alex will be back next week, which is exciting. We'll be doing our full Gills of Ravnica set review as the full set I think will be spoiled by then. Um, Every single week, guys, on Tuesdays, preferably, we stream the show live here, and then the show will go up on Thursdays on the YouTube channel. So that's going to wrap us up for the day. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Same time, same place next week. Take care, everybody. Thank you for your attention. For further inquiries, send an email to the mmcast at rocketjump.com. See you later, alligator. <laughs>